Okay, turn if you would to Luke chapter 1. Luke 1, 26 through 38 today. Let's pray. Remember, our God, your promises, for in them we have our hope. You have proved yourself faithful time and time and time again in bringing into reality that which you have promised. Because of your faithfulness, we have uh, a certain and a living hope that you will bring to completion that which you have started both in us and in the world through Jesus Christ and in this comfort. Uh, for our afflictions and both in, in afflictions and in, in plenty, in trial and in, in abundance, uh, your promises give us life. So will you yet again put before our eyes your promises in Christ that we would be animated and invigorated by them to live out the callings which you have placed before each one of us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You stand for the reading of the word, if you're able, Luke 1, 26 through 38. In the sixth month, of the, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Amen. This is God's word. We've come to the season of Advent, and I think actually last week was technically the first week, but I wasn't here, and so this is for me the first week of of doing an Advent series, and my plan is to go through this section of Luke, of the the, the birth narrative of Christ, and looking at the promises and and, um, in the... (laughs) 
years past in this church, we've gone as far back looking at the promises of God as, as Genesis, Genesis 3.15, and now we're coming all the way up to those that, that butt up against the birth of Christ, the promises given to Mary um, in these stories. And so that's the plan for the Advent season. Uh, yesterday I had someone trying to evangelize me from some sort of Church of Mary. They thought the Trinity was the Father, the Son, and Mary, I think. Which, interestingly enough, is also, I think, what the Quran says. Um, and also, as Protestants, we all know that the, the Roman Catholic Church has gone uh, too far in its exaltation of Mary. We sometimes, therefore, treat the figure of Mary with suspicion. However... Uh, probably never more than this week as I studied for this. I have been more amazed at the way God raised up this person, Mary, and blessed her and bestowed on her one of the highest callings, if not the highest calling any human being has ever had. And indeed, her own willingness in comparison to, say, Zechariah or many of the Old Testament prophets and the faith and grace which with which she accepted her calling is extraordinary even though we want to be careful not to go too far with this figure of Mary. Of course, Mary, as we know, is a lowly person from multiple standards, and yet God has highly exalted and favored her. And this is, this is fitting within a larger framework, of a pattern within the Bible of humiliation and exaltation, of being from, brought from low to high. Uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism is, I think, perhaps the best summary outside of Philippians 2 of the humiliation of Christ. It says in question 27, wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born and that in a low condition made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God and the cursed death of the cross, being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. And ever since I learned this, this catechism, I've always been struck by the first line, and it's one we would tend to pass over, but I like to pause and to hover over this one. Christ's humiliation consisted in being born. In being born, and that in a low condition. That's the first part, is the fact that he was born at all. Philippians 2, he emptied himself being born in the likeness of men. So this is among God's favorite patterns uh, to bring from nothing something, to lift up the humble, to exalt the lowly. And of course, Christ is the ultimate of this, this uh, pattern. And this story of humiliation and exaltation of the Messiah being born and that in a low condition um, that God might highly exalt on him and bestow on him the name that is above every name. So the story begins with the visitation of the angel Gabriel, uh, setting the scene as both really humble and impossible uh, from a human perspective. In verse 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. In the sixth month here, this means in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, uh, which is the story that, that immediately precedes this. And 
in this month, the Lord sends Gabriel to Mary, and immediately we notice the impossible lowliness of the situation. First of all, the angel was sent to Galilee, to a town of Nazareth. Uh, this place was not an esteemed place. I, I don't know, I don't, no offense to anyone here, but kind of Clifton comes to mind. Like, this is not a place that everyone thinks of highly. Uh, in John 7, it says that uh, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? That's unexpected. That's not a place you'd want your Messiah to come from. Nathaniel also said uh, of Jesus, can anything good come from Nazareth? So the first lowly thing we see is that she's from Nazareth. The second thing is that Mary was a virgin betrothed to Joseph, which from which we learn that she was, first of all, a woman. We have to remember that while the Gospels in particular esteem women, uh, the fact that she was an already or that, that she was a she is, is already a societal strike against her. It's one more thing to add it to her lowliness. And also, she was probably very young. Betrothal often happened around the ages of 12 to 14. The young woman would, would, after being betrothed, continue to live with her family for a time. However, the betrothal was binding, and it, it was either divorce or death that could end a betrothal. And if the man died, she would be considered a widow. But if she was betrothed and being called a virgin, she was probably in that age range of early teens or teens. So not only was she a woman, she was a very young woman. And thirdly, she was a virgin, which it seems obvious in human terms, but this would have to be remedied if she was going to be an applicant to be hired for the position of mother of Messiah, at least from human terms. So this is a humble and honestly preposterous situation. And yet, there the angel of the Lord, Gabriel, stands in her midst uh, with a message of great favor. Verse 28, he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Notice in the text, I think this is interesting, the source of Mary's trouble um, is not, as I would expect, the presence of an angel, which, if Scripture's any indication, probably that adds to her nervousness a little bit. People are, are terrified in the presence of the angel. But notice what it says in the text. Luke seems to be to tell us that the message itself was disconcerting to her. It says she was trying to discern what sort of greeting this might be. She, it says she was troubled at the saying. She, she's confused by what the angel said to her. Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. And what kind of greeting is that, especially to a young virgin from the backwater town of Nazareth? It's like, did the angel Gabriel get the wrong address? And of course, no, it was her. She's found favor with God, he says. So this is grace. This is pure, unmerited favor for Mary. 
She's not earned it. It's not because she has a degree of status, because she does it. But instead, the Lord has chosen her and placed divine favor on her. This greeting, I think, actually clues us into what's taking place here. I hadn't thought of it in these terms before, but the commentaries pointed it to me, pointed it out to me, is, is that this bears a striking resemblance to the call narratives of the Old Testament. Not only is it a birth announcement, but it's a form of a call to Mary. Mary's being called perhaps to the most unique and extraordinary calling of any person in redemptive history, that is to bear the Messiah in her womb. And if we consider the pattern, as one commentary pointed out, and compare it to other calls of the prophets, I think we can see this. There's usually an introduction. So in this case, the angel is sent to Mary, and then there's some sort of confrontation or greeting uh, and she, the angel comes and says, greetings, O favored one. And then there's the call, the substance of the call, where he says, you shall bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. And then most of the people who are called to something in the New Old Testament or in the New Testament, they have reservations about this call, which Mary does. You remember Moses. Moses had reservations about his call. Mary has a reservation. How will this be since I am a virgin? And then there's some sort of reassurance and then a sign given, in this case, the sign of Elizabeth's pregnancy and a conclusion. And so I'm convinced that this is a calling and not a mere birth announcement. Um, And it adds weight to the event because it's both now a privilege and a great responsibility placed on the life of Mary. As with most calls, it's a bit scary. So the promise she receives here, the Lord is with you, often accompanies calls that that produce in their recipient a sense of foreboding. Because whenever God calls anyone to anything, that vocation is always beyond their natural capacity. He, He loves to demonstrate his strength and weakness, and he wants us to depend on him. So a few examples of this saying, the Lord is with you and a call Genesis 26:24 to Isaac. And the Lord appeared to him that same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. Genesis 28:15 to Jacob. Behold, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. In Exodus 3.12 to Moses, he says, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Another one, Judges 6.12 to Gideon, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. I was like that one because he, meanwhile he's hiding in a vat. <laughs> o man of valor. Jeremiah 1.8 to Jeremiah, do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver them, to, to deliver you. So we see here lowly Mary visited by the Lord's angel and greeted as one who's found favor with God, who will receive a daunting call for which the Lord will be with her. And next we see her call, this humble 
virgin receiving the highest of callings. And, and I'm of the belief that, um, contrary to, I think, our society's views, that motherhood is a high, high calling and, and privileged and also one of the most challenging that a person can receive. When asked the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? Zoe has never moved from saying, a mama. Now she's a gifted and capable little lady. She could do anything, any, not anything, any number of wonderful things and pursue a variety of callings. But, and some in our world would, would want to say, what a waste. Don't encourage her to say that. Our society seems to want every woman to kind of have a Deborah call, to be strong and maybe even violent, or to be a man, essentially. You see this in the Marvel movies. The heroines weigh like 14 pounds. They break the necks of 250-pound men like they're, they're candy canes. Right? Like, this is supposed to be a strong woman. We can't say, we can't burden these strong women like that with children. I say if the Lord wills and the Lord calls, Zoe has her sights set on a lofty and wonderful and difficult calling. How much more lofty and weighty and difficult and wondrous to be called to be the mother of the Messiah. To carry the Son of God in her womb. She would be, as the definition of Chalcedon says, the God-bearer. It's no wonder she says in her Magnificat, which we'll get to next, three weeks from now, two weeks from now, uh, he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, for behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. Echoing Isaiah 7, Gabriel announces to her in verse 31, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And Gabriel tells her six things about this person who would be conceived in her womb. First, you shall call his name Jesus. As you know, Jesus is a common name. It's essentially the name Joshua as a Hebrew. Yahwistic names. Yahwistic names include the name of Yahweh in there. Um, like Cohen's middle name is Elijah. That Jah is Yahweh. Yahweh is my God. Jeremiah. Uh, Yahweh will raise or lift up Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. How fitting for the Savior of the world. In Matthew, the angel of the Lord appears to Joseph and tells him, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So Gabriel's telling her the Savior of the people of God is going to be conceived in you. Second, is that he will be great in verse 32. He will be great. Again, from someone who is nothing by any societal measure will come from some, will come someone who is great. And indeed, from Jesse's stump, which has been raised, will grow a mighty shoot. Isaiah 9, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. He will be great. Third, he will be called the Son of the Most High. Um, and I want to come back to that one momentarily. Fourth, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. So whatever may be cryptic or confusing or foreign to Mary about the encountering angel uh, Gabriel, 
this would have been very clear to her. This is plain messianic language. And every Jew at this point in history was waiting for this moment when the great son of David would come and would sit on the throne of his father David and would establish his kingdom and establish the people of God. We know uh, the promise well at this point, as we've seen it multiple times in Acts, but I'll read it again from Second Samuel seven eleven through 13. To David, when your days are fulfilled and you will lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And he goes on in verse 16 and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And indeed, this language here is clearly echoed in the fifth and sixth. Uh, descriptions of this this son in verse 33 and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and and the sixth one and if his kingdom there will be no end he's clearly saying to to Mary this this child will be the Messiah if we go back to the third one and he will be called the son of the most high God said to David at the coming a messianic king about this this king who would come in in verse 14 of second samuel 7 and i will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son so that's what he's getting at when he says he'll be the son of the most high this is davidic covenant language i think at robertson is correct here when he says we cannot insist on deity here though that is possible. Of course, we believe he is divine, but in this instance, um, in Luke 6.35, the same kind of language is applied more generally. Love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. So it doesn't have to mean divinity here. But So clearly, this reference, this whole section, is, is saying the Davidic king will be, come from you. The Messiah will come from you, Mary. This is this is good news. This is extraordinarily good news for Mary. Yes, but also for all of Israel who has been waiting for the Messiah, for the Davidic king to finally arrive. And the promise will finally be reality. But I can also imagine a sense of foreboding for Mary being called to this lofty calling and and also confusion. Um, She does, again, what many in Scripture do when they're called by God, is is she has some doubt, some reservation, some question. Some who are called uh, in Scripture have doubts about their own worthiness for the call. Isaiah, in his call, Isaiah 6, 4, and 5, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Am I worthy for to be called to be a prophet of God? Others doubt their ability. Uh, Moses, Moses was full of objections. In Exodus 3.1, he says to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And again in 4 verse 1, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. And in verse 10 of chapter 4, 
He says, oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and of tongue. So he doubts his ability to be able to carry out this thing that God has called him to do. And Mary's doubt seems to be more of a practical concern about the mechanics of the situation. Comparatively, she she displays extraordinary faith. Calvin points out, I think helpfully, that it's true. She probably shouldn't have questioned at all. After all, this this is the visitation of the angel of God. And surely he will do what he said. But consider all the things she could have objected to. Like Really, right now, the Messiah is going to come right now when Israel is weak and in subjection to the Roman Empire and there's not even a throne of David for this Messiah to sit on? Or her own self, me, lowly, from Nazareth, just a young girl. I mean, if Moses could say, who am I? Mary could say, who am I? But she didn't. She just asked this one question. How will this be since I am a virgin? There's many parallels we could draw between uh, this birth announcement and the preceding one with uh, when, when Gabriel visits Zechariah. To announce the birth of John the Baptist, uh, Zechariah asks a question, and his question seems to betray more skepticism. He and Elizabeth were unable to conceive a child throughout their marriage and were well beyond years of conceiving. In his question, he demands a sign. How shall I know this? How shall I know this? He's skeptical. Give me a sign. For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And Zechariah gets his sign um, in the form of a mild judgment. You'll be mute till John the Baptist is born. And the angel gently rebukes him. He says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Gabriel does not offer rebuke to Mary. He gives her two answers to her question. The first answer is a bit of an explanation in verse 35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So the short answer is God is going to do it. God is going to do it. Calvin says that the the angel does not explain the manner so as to satisfy curiosity, which there was no necessity for doing, only he leads the virgin to contemplate the power of the Holy Spirit and to surrender herself silently and calmly to his guidance. More broadly, though, the word overshadow is filled with rich significance. First of all, God's protective power over Israel is presented as a shadow, as a wing over Israel in the Old Testament, in the Psalms in particular. Um, Psalm 17, 8, keep me as the apple of your eye, hide me in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 57, 1, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. Psalm 91, 1, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. So first, there's a sense of power and protection in that word overshadow. Second, uh, God's theophonic presence is often in the form of a cloud. 
um, in the wilderness, in the pillar of the cloud, the tabernacle and the Shekinah glory, uh, the cloud at the transfiguration, and even at the revelation, the second coming. And thirdly, this overshadowing, uh, this, a shadow conceals, it hides something. Calvin again here is helpful. He says, the operation of the Spirit would be secret, as if in an intervening cloud did not permit it to be beheld by the eyes of men. Now as God, in performing miracles, withholds from us the manner of his proceedings, so what he chooses to conceal from us ought to be viewed on our part with seriousness and adoration. Isn't that the case that so often we want to probe into the mysteries of God and so often he says that which is revealed is for you and your children. Fourthly here, this event is packed with uh, theological significance um, and perhaps some of it wouldn't have been readily apparent to Mary just yet, but it seems like it's apparent to Luke and this this reminds me here, this event of overshadowing reminds me of creation when the Spirit of the Lord hovers over the surface of the waters. I was thinking that and it made sense to me and I did find some strong support for that uh, in other writers. Um, God ordinarily brings about His purposes through means. Obviously, the, the procreation of children has a very specific means, but as creator of the universe, it is nothing for Him to intervene in creation, to, to miraculously bring about this person. Moreover, I think what we see here is an act of divine recreation. The very beginning of the new creation begins at the conception of this person, Jesus Christ, by the power, the creative power of the Holy Spirit. This is the the conception of the second Adam who who would covenantally represent his people. And of course, this is one of many reasons that it, why it's significant that he's called holy. This is one of two more descriptions Gabriel adds to the child. Uh, again, in verse 35, the spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. Had he been born by, by ordinary means? By ordinary generation, to use the language of the catechism, say through Joseph, how would he be able to represent us as his people? He wouldn't. He would be like the rest of us, born with original sin, lost in original sin and original guilt. But rather, this child would be sanctified through a unique conception, which qualifies him to execute the office of our Savior. Hebrews 4.10 says that he was made like us in all respects except for sin. And that's essential for salvation. Uh, I hope we can start to see the, the critical impact this event has on us. Because our salvation depends on Jesus not being born by ordinary means. The way Jesus came into the world is immensely important. It's it's far more than a nice story about about a a baby in a manger or a humble, humble girl of finding favor with God. He had to be a man uh, to represent us men, to bear the wrath of God on behalf of men. 
But he had to be a, a pure man, a pure sacrifice, a lamb without spot or blemish in order to satisfy the righteous wrath of God. And so it says he will be called holy. Likewise, he will also be called the son of God. This term son of God carries with it the same sort of a messianic kingly implications of, of, of before of being the son of the most high. But it goes also beyond that, testifying to the divinity of his personhood. Calvin is again helpful. The passage, he says, not only expresses a unity of the person of Christ, but also at the same time points out that in clothing himself with human flesh, Christ is the Son of God. As the name Son of God belonged to the divine essence of Christ from the beginning, so now it is applied unitedly to both natures because the secret and heavenly manner of generation has separated him from the ordinary rank of men. There are all manner of of theological implications and and delights we could dive into here on this verse. Um, But for now, suffice it to say, this child of Mary's who will be born in a lowly estate will be exalted to the point of being called holy, to be called the, the son of God. Second answer that Gabriel gives her is a sign. God often provides when he calls someone to a significant redemptive or revelatory task. He gives them a sign. Verse 36, And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. For nothing will be impossible with God. Again, the short answer to Mary's question is simply, God will do it. God will do it, but he's gracious to provide signs to supplement the promises that he gives in order to that the, the weakness of our faith may find something to hold on to. So he gives her this sign that, that even Elizabeth has been able to conceive in her old age. Mary's response here is one of humble submission and of reliance upon God. Uh, this is this this event in Mary's life is no small disruption. You can imagine she's about to to marry Joseph. She's a young woman. How would this affect her relationship with Joseph? How, what would people think when she's pregnant, being betrothed to Joseph? Well, what explanation are you going to give to people that that makes sense? When an angel appeared to me and told me I'd conceive the Messiah with, as a virgin, like. Who's going to listen to that? This is a very disruptive event for her. We also know, reading the rest of the Gospels, the confusion and pain that she would endure as the mother of Jesus and ultimately witnessing him being born on a cross. But what does she say? What is her response? It's just, okay. Okay. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Again, people have, I think, gone well overboard here. But we should pause to say this is a beautiful display of faith on the part of Mary uh, and worthy of emulation. That whatever we may be facing, good or ill, the promises of God are trustworthy. 
despite the, the lack of clarity that we may have or, or the daunting nature of our particular callings, we would do well as Mary did and even as her father Abraham did to believe God. That's the definition of faith, to believe God, not just to believe in God, but to believe God, to believe the promises of God. So she says, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me as you have spoken. Of course, at the end of the day, however, this is not ultimately about Mary, but about Christ. It's about the circumstances of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That Jesus humbled himself by being born, and that in a low condition, but not without the promise of exaltation. So two points to consider for this Advent season. It is a season of anticipation. First, as we look toward Christmas, we should be willing to, I think, sit in the humiliation of Christ. To consider, to think on his lowly estate. To consider his life under the law. To consider his suffering and enjoy the anticipation of the hope that the incarnation fulfills. Be willing to, to sit in the humiliation. It, it's a glorious part of our salvation. Secondly, during Advent, uh, Advent is an altogether appropriate time to look forward to the second Advent of Christ. In fact, historically, they spent a lot, usually two weeks on that part of of the Advent, the second Advent, and two weeks on the coming, or the, the initial, the first Advent. So it's a good time to look forward to the second Advent of Christ. So in light of, of that Advent, we should consider the, the pattern and the wisdom of God, understanding that we ourselves share in the same pattern of humiliation and exaltation. That for now we are lowly, we are in what the, the catechism calls in a state of sin and misery. And we have gone with Christ outside the camp. But when he appears, John says in First John, when he appears, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. That's something to look forward to in our own estate. I'll just leave off here uh, with a quote from Paul from... Uh, Philippians chapter 2. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Praise God.